Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. Just ten years after the American Revolution, the frontier was once again raising arms. Buried in debt, Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton placed an excise tax on domestically produced whiskey. Considering it a terrible burden, angry frontier farmers rose up and opened rebellion against the United States in the vast Ohio country. In the end, President George Washington saddled up his horse and led the American army as commander-in-chief one final time. On this episode, we discuss the Whiskey Rebellion. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 6 of the series, we're discussing American Rebellions, the winners and losers competing for the future of the American Republic. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, or by searching Wartime Podcast. You can visit my author's website for news, updates, appearances, and events. We have a lot coming up. I look forward to meeting you. BradyKreitzer.com You can visit the Facebook page. Join the conversation. It's growing every day. Facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer And of course, your home for everything wartime on the web. WartimePodcast.com Today's episode continues our series within a series as we discuss the American rebellions that shaped our national republic. Now, within Season 6, we've been focusing on rebellions after the revolution. If you haven't checked out last week's episode, you'll want to do that. Shay's Rebellion, 1786 to 1787. That's just four years after the end of the hostilities we know of as the War of the American Revolution. Already, just within four years, we've seen one more rebellion after the rebellion, fought by many of the same veterans who fought in the American Revolution for, believe it or not, many of the same reasons. Taxes, taxes, taxes. I wish I could tell you that goes away, but we're still fighting over taxes today. So, as Benjamin Franklin said, The only guarantees in life are death and taxes. We're going to continue that narrative today, now a full seven years later, in the year 1794. And if you'll indulge me, I get to talk about my favorite subject of them all, my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Now I know what you're thinking. Here's some Homer going to be talking about where he's from. And after 80 episodes, you know, I think... You can indulge me a little bit. My wife and I have this uh, tradition whenever we travel. Uh, I'll, we'll get off the plane, I'll look at a city, and I'll say, you know, this is really a great city. And she'll reply by saying, yeah, but they ain't got six Super Bowls. And that's true. Only one city does, and it's Pittsburgh. But at any rate, this is a Pittsburgh story, 
but I don't want you to tune out if you're not familiar with the region, because it's actually a very big national story. It just happens to occur in what is today Western Pennsylvania. It's a very good pleasure. It's a very great pleasure for me to be able to highlight this very important national history and, in some cases, international history. Because again, I get to gloat about my hometown, the capital of Empire USA, if you ask me, Pittsburgh. Now, the events I'm going to tell you about today happened within 10 miles of our studio, right here down the road in some cases. And it's one of the most important events in American history that is simply not studied enough. Not because people are willingly ignorant of it, I think because it's complicated and it's pretty difficult to put into place because it happens after the revolution. That's when things were settled down. That's when we did it. Then why are we still fighting 10 years later? The Whiskey Rebellion will be one of these critical, critical points in our history. And again, it's my pleasure to share this information with you about my hometown. Also, if you visit Pittsburgh and you want to see these sites, you have my email address, bradykreitzer.com. Click the link. I'm happy to help. I want people to be able to share this information because there just isn't enough good resources out there. So let's begin. In many, many ways, the Whiskey Rebellion is a story about the presidency. It's a story about the Constitution. It's a story about executive power. It's also a story about a world where none of those things have really existed before. And the very first president... His Excellency George Washington will be confronted with issues that really there is no playbook for. How do you deal with these problems? What is a commander-in-chief supposed to do? Where this ends and how far his involvement goes, I promise you, will shock you. But let's talk about what's going on in America after the Revolution. By 1794, we have a Constitution. It is the exact same document that we operate under right now today in the 21st century. If we do it right, it won't change. And that was really spurred on by the events of last week's episode. Shays' Rebellion, 1786 to 1787. Remember I told you we didn't have a constitution back then. We had a different legal framework. The Articles of Confederation. They were drafted under the fear of a, an all-powerful empire, uh, very hesitant to deal in a strong central government, and Shays' Rebellion revealed to the country that we need something stronger and more concrete. Enter the Constitutional Convention. By 1794, the country's really in motion. We have our legal framework, and we turn the machine on. Let's see how it works out. And so far, so good. We have our first president, George Washington, and he ran amazingly for a second term. Pretty incredible, considering he didn't want to come back in the first place. Shays' Rebellion brought him back into the public fold. But George Washington faces tons of challenges. As president, there's nearly no precedent for him to look back on. What should he do in this situation? And it's what the Whiskey Rebellion's all about. So a little bit about Washington moving forward. George Washington was beloved by North and South. 
He despised the notion of political parties because he believed they were poisonous to this country. And to his credit, in his presidency and during his presidency, uh, we didn't really see political parties pop up. Now, in his second term, we did in all but name. A new radical ideology had taken over the country that was known as democratic republicanism. This was led by his Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson. It's a very states' rights, southern populist message. On the other side uh, was the more liberal viewpoint, uh, or maybe perhaps better to say uh, the more big government viewpoint by today's standards, federalism. And most considered Washington a federalist. But because of his service in the Revolution, because he was a slave owner himself, uh, believe it or not, George Washington owned almost 350 slaves. That's more than 1% of all of the slaves in Virginia. It's a serious investment uh, on his part. Got him a lot of cred, if you would, in, in the Old Dominion. Uh, because of that, he was like Mr. Untouchable. Northerners loved him. Southerners loved him. Only Washington can hold the country together away from the, the terrible burdens of partisanship. Uh, and as soon as he leaves, by the way, it's on. And we've uh, never left it since. But at any rate, uh, Washington has these problems. He has Jefferson on one side, the populist uh, in his cabinet. He has on the other side uh, the big government liberal, Alexander Hamilton, the Federalist, as Secretary of the Treasury. And these two will fight. Many think of them as like his uh, the sons he never had in some ways. And they'll push and pull and they'll drive him mad. But nothing drives him more crazy than, than the existential threats to our country that these two powerful voices just can't agree on. And one of the biggest ones is our national debt. Because even though we're 10 years away from the Amer 10 years removed from the American Revolution, we are still more than $20 million in debt. And it's not going down anytime soon. Shea's Rebellion was all about uh, a revolution against taxes. That sounds familiar. And the debt is still stagnant. So it falls on Alexander Hamilton to find a way to deal with this. He looks at where our revenue comes from into the government. Most of it comes on tariffs on foreign goods, things we buy from elsewhere. And he has already raised those tariffs to the point where he believes it'll be counterproductive to raise them any further. A lot of European powers that sell goods to us understand we're trying to get back on our feet. They do have to pay to sell their goods in the, in the emerging American uh, nation. But any higher than they were. And it's going to start to almost set off a trade war, if you would. It's not going to be worth it for them to sell here. So Hamilton looks for another way to raise revenue. And what he looks to is, what at the time was unthinkable, a national excise tax. That is, a tax on a domestically produced good. The first one ever put on by the federal government. We've seen states raise taxes before, but never the feds. Never the big government. Never the government that will today be in Washington, D.C. And boy, that's a habit they really got, uh, became very fond of, right? Uh, because they've never stopped raising our taxes. But at any rate, um, that's what he looks for. And the commodity he wants to tax is one that's super popular, one that's drank and used by almost everybody, uh, and one that is certain to continue into the future, and that is whiskey. 
Whiskey was a good item to tax in Hamilton's mind. For the teetotalers, for the religious folks, it would be sort of a sin tax. Because whiskey is, uh, you know, a, a narcotic of sorts, if you would. It's alcohol. Um, but for Hamilton, it's a good thing to tax because it's drunk everywhere. And that's a lot of revenue to increase. But there was another side to this, which Hamilton was very fond of, Jefferson was very angry about, and Washington was very weary of. And it was the political side. And that's where, of all places to talk about today, we get to talk about Pittsburgh. You see, Pittsburgh in the 18th century was the edge of our world. It was the edge of the frontier. In the Revolution, it was far out. If this was Game of Thrones, you know, we're just over the wall. But by the time you get to the 1790s, there are settlements further west of us in Pittsburgh, but not many. And Pittsburgh's kind of the last major city uh, where you can live in some form of or sense of government control. Any further west, you're like on your own. And Pittsburgh wasn't that nice. It was sort of like... It was known as the Sodom and Gomorrah of its day. It was based around the major military installation of Fort Pitt. It was a ramshackle collections of cabins. Most of them were uh, the equivalent of taverns, saloons, uh, places of gambling and prostitution and drunkenness and fights. And, you know, people moved to this part of the world to get away from the long arm of the law. Think of the Wild West uh, before there was a Wild West. And that is... Pittsburgh, and the region largely known as the Ohio Country. Again, anything beyond Pittsburgh, you were really on your own. So Pittsburgh is one of those important places, just for some context in American history. But it's not so much Pittsburgh itself that's sort of galling to Hamilton, as much as it is the people who live there. Because you know the sorts who move west. People who have no opportunities in the East, people who are trying to maybe get away from their former life, people who are not fond of outsiders poking their nose in their business, and, oh, FYI, people who do not like to pay taxes. And this really bothers Hamilton, because he knows there's Americans living there, he knows they should pay taxes, but who the heck is going to march over the Appalachian Mountains into this wilderness and go and do it? That's an unenviable job. So Hamilton believes if you put a tax on whiskey, you'll get money from them one way or the other. Jefferson, for him, the populist, doesn't like that. Because those people in the frontier, those are his people. Not these big government elites in New York and Philadelphia and Boston. But those people out on the frontiers. These independent-minded folks. Uh, these, um, these sort of insular you know, Scots-Irish communities. Those are the people Jefferson wants to represent, give voice to, and hopefully get votes from in the future. So he thinks this is sort of Hamilton's way of, of ramming government down their throats. Again, this is not new stuff. I mean, you could have these debates today. But it's what's going on in the 18th century. So what's the big deal with whiskey? Well, believe it or not, at that time, 1790s, uh, western Pennsylvania, the Ohio country was the cereal grain capital of North America. We grew more corn, wheat, and most importantly, rye in western Pennsylvania than anywhere else in the country. And if you're talking whiskey, 
you're talking corn, you're talking rye. But the rye specifically was a very big deal because the rye whiskey that came out of the Ohio country was world-renowned. And really all the way until Prohibition in the 1920s, Pittsburgh was still producing some of the finest rye whiskey on the planet. They won medals in France at, 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 at whiskey competitions. Um, it's a very, uh, very distinct and, and very enjoyable version of rye known as Monongahela rye. That comes from the three rivers in and around Pittsburgh. The Allegheny flowing north to south, the Monongahela flowing south to north, merging to form the Ohio River, the great superhighway to the west. So for farmers here, whiskey was the natural choice. Because you're not going to grow grain, corn or rye, and lug that across the mountains to Philadelphia, New York, and Boston. It's too heavy and it's too expensive. What you are going to do is distill it down into something that is easier to move and much more profitable. And that's whiskey. So the tax on whiskey by Hamilton, the first domestic tax ever by the federal government, is a means of uh, grabbing some and snagging some revenue from the frontiersmen at that time. And there's this larger debate that's going. For George Washington, he tends to side with Hamilton here. He may not like the methods, but we do need that money. And there's so many more layers to this, which are almost unbelievable. But this money specifically from the whiskey tax, it's almost crazy to say, to give you some of the frontiersman's perspective, was going solely to paying down debts owed for the American Revolution. And who do we owe the debts to? Well, we owe debts to the French, we owe debts to the Dutch, we owed some to the Spanish, and for Hamilton, those were all okay. Because it basically guaranteed our survival if we were ever attacked by the British again. They'd have to jump in and help us because we owe them money. This money was very specifically owed to American private lenders. Guys like Robert Morris, the richest man in the colonies, gave money from his own coffers to the revolution. Not a gift, but a loan. And the loan came due. So if you're a farmer in the Ohio country, you're a whiskey grower, very salt of the earth, you have very little means anyway, now what you hear is the government's going to tax you, take your money, and give it to the richest man in the country. It's not going to you know, better the community. It's not going to building forts or moving soldiers. They're literally taking your money and giving it to the richest guy in the colonies. You can see why they'd be angry. And you can see why they would be pushed to the point of rebellion. By the way, as an aside, um, after Prohibition, the whiskey business really fell out here in western Pennsylvania. Uh, but it's coming back. There's a few really impressive whiskey distilleries here in and around Pittsburgh that are, that are making whiskey and distilling it in the fashion that it would have been done in the 18th century. So if you're in the area and whiskey's your thing, uh, there's some really, really, you know, really neat ones. And, and they do have this bend toward history, which is important too. It's one of these lost legacies of Pittsburgh. Everybody thinks steel. They don't think empire... Indian warfare of the 18th century and whiskey of the 18th century, but it's worth visiting.
Okay, so let's jump right in. You have these people who, who refuse to pay taxes here in the Ohio country, and you have a federal government under the control of George Washington, but really, in this regard, Alexander Hamilton. And he is demanding that monies be paid. Some of the big problems for the frontiersmen. One is that cold hard cash, currency, gold and silver, even paper money, is in short supply on the frontier. We talked about that in the previous episode on Shay's Rebellion. People on the frontier regions don't often have valuable currency. So instead, they trade goods. They trade some of their rye crop, some of their corn crop, uh, some of their wheat crop, and that you know covers a lot of their local debts. Alexander Hamilton has no interest in collecting, you know, X amount of dollars worth of rye or even worth of whiskey. He wants money. And that's something that people literally cannot produce. So he sets out tax collectors to find this money and bring them in. If people can't pay, they're going to have to suffer uh, foreclosure as a result on their farm. Now, there's a lot of layers to it of East versus West, city versus country. But one of the biggest is, if a person was asked to pay their taxes here in, on the frontier, and they couldn't do it, they would have to be tried in court. Now, because courts don't meet regularly in the frontier, maybe four times a year, quarter sessions they call them, these courts very specifically were going to be held in Philadelphia, on the other side of the state. That's about a six-hour drive from Pittsburgh today. Imagine doing it on horseback. It's a, it's a really extreme inconvenience for these farmers and something that's really not tenable for them. So it's another layer of the animosity they're going to have. Now remember, these are veterans of the American Revolution, many of them. They've already gone to war once over taxes. They fought the revolution, they lost friends, they were wounded because they were told at the end they would get a government of their choosing. To them, this is far worse than anything that the British had ever done to them. So they start to rebel as a way that was fashionable at the time. Now, you may be familiar with tarring and feathering people, uh, public demonstrations, that all happened in the Whiskey Rebellion. And tarring and feathering, by the way, was no fun ordeal for anyone. But often, if you were a victim of that, uh, as tax collectors were being treated at the time, you would often get third-degree burns on your body. Uh, men had their extremities lost from the burning tar, fingers, toes, genitals, you name it. It wasn't like a fun thing. Uh, but the frontier was, was really dis uh, disintegrating in terms of law and order as a result of these whiskey taxes and subsequent whiskey uprisings. They weren't violent. That being said, I just mentioned a very violent act. And they were clearly very angry about what was happening. Some of the things they would do, they would create effigies of tax collectors and burn them in the streets. Uh, they would publish pamphlets talking about their rights and why their rights are being violated. They openly talked about, and I'm not kidding, seceding from the United States and joining with the Empire of Spain, who was still on the continent on the other side of the Mississippi River, and forming up with Spanish alliance because the Spanish wanted whiskey too. I mean, 
This seems absurd to us today. The notion that the six counties of southwestern Pennsylvania and one of West Virginia would secede as their own country. But put yourself in Washington's shoes. You have a brand new country that's 10 years old. You know full well what's at stake, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And you know how thin of a line that is. Everybody in Europe thinks it's not going to work. They think it will disintegrate. And this is how it happens. Shay's Rebellion was the warning. There wasn't a constitution to deal with it. But now you have a constitution and you have another rebellion. This one even bigger than Shay's Rebellion. So for George Washington, this is a very, very dangerous event. They look at how to calm down a lot of the, the uh, public displays of revolt in Pittsburgh. Uh, again, Pittsburgh is the city, the main city of the region, but this really goes on in and around the city. And they start to say things like, well, maybe we can try them in their own courts because we got to collect that money. Maybe making them travel all the way to Philadelphia is a bad idea. And George Washington thinks that's a reasonable alternative. Alexander Hamilton does not. Hamilton wants these people to pay a price for not paying their taxes. But again, even more, there's this political edge to it. He wants to put them in their place. He wants to assert uh, the power of the federal government. Eventually... The congressman that represents the area will get that done in a deal with Hamilton. He will have it so that if these people can't pay their taxes, they do not have to travel far. They can have these dealt with in their own courts. But by then, Hamilton has made sure it's already too late. Because he has sent a federal agent, a tax collector, with 60 warrants for the arrest of people who don't pay their taxes to go in and around Pittsburgh uh, and collect. Again, there is no evidence. Hamilton never says, I'm going to promote this agenda to punish these people, but it's pretty obvious what's happening here. And the fact that he did that um, has a lot to do with it. We're going to start to see some interesting characters pop into this story, and they're names that uh, you should know involving the event. One of them is a federal marshal named David Lennox. Lennox is going to be the one, he works for the federal government, that will be delivering these uh, notices, these warrants. And he is fully unprepared for what he's walking into. He'll be joined by the primary federal tax collector of the region, a man named John Neville. Neville is very wealthy. He's established. He has a huge mansion outside of Pittsburgh. He's a Revolutionary War veteran himself. In fact, he was an officer in the Continental Army. So these are not like the big bad British or these like nefarious outsiders. Again, these are people that in other contexts are serving our early national government, our Revolutionary War veterans. These are people we would typically applaud. But when you turn the tables of who's collecting the taxes and who's paying the taxes you start to see that there's this like very clear divide between what people like to think of as good guys and bad guys. And it's one of the reasons the Whiskey Rebellion just isn't studied that often. Because it does blur the lines that we are comfortable with. The American Revolution, for many people, was good versus bad. Hopefully you know by now, it's a very gray area. 
Uh, this is even grayer, if you can imagine, uh, when you change this. At any rate, 1794, July 15th, David Lennox begins marching around uh, the farms and settlements and plantations around Pittsburgh. And he's delivering these letters. And most of the day, he's again with the tax collector, uh, John Neville. Uh, everything goes smoothly. They deliver the warrants. They tell these people there's some summons. You have to go to court. There's no problem. But then, right near the end of the day, they approach a homestead of a man named Oliver Miller. And they go to deliver a letter there. And Oliver Miller of Scots-Irish stock uh, is not the kind of guy that appreciates anyone coming into his property, knocking on his door, and demanding money. So what does he do? He opens fire on the two government officials. Now, we don't know if he's trying to kill them. It's very likely he's trying to scare them, as these backwoods people tend to do. Um, but that was enough for both the Marshal Lennox and the tax collector Neville to turn around and get out of there, whether or not they delivered the summons or not. And again, it's one of these important moments, because it's the first time that the Whiskey Rebellion goes from a series of demonstrations, albeit on the radical riotous side, to actual shooting at federal officials. And this is all very troubling for Washington, because he knows about this. You can't have American citizens shooting at federal officers. The next day, after this, these shots are fired at the Miller homestead, you see a group of uh, 30 other what we'll call whiskey rebels rallying together, talking about the events that are happening, and pushing it to the brink. And this time they surround the home of John Neville, a big mansion plantation called Bower Hill. When they're there, they have some demands, and they expect to be heard. Many of them are Revolutionary War veterans. It was only 10 years earlier. And remember, uh, they fought for a government of their choice. They were told, you have a say in your government. You have a demand. Here are our demands. They said, number one, turn over the Federal Marshal Lennox. They know he's in the mansion. As an aside, he wasn't. John Neville tells them, get back and off my property. They say they won't leave. Neville sticks a gun out the window and takes a shot. Now, you have a group of 30 rebels demanding things, right? Uh, issuing demands. Uh, and, and by all accounts, Neville just put a gun out the window, pulled the trigger, didn't really look where he was shooting, maybe as a warning shot of his own. But as fate would have it, and you can't make this up, the random bullet goes into the crowd, and who does it hit? This is by total chance. It wasn't an aimed shot. And you couldn't aim with those, those guns anyway that well. It hits Oliver Miller, the man who opened fire on them yesterday, the day before. So, of course, when Miller falls, this all becomes politics. It's revenge for the day before. Our government is opening fire on us and shooting on us. They all run away and regroup at a place they call Fort Couch. Now, a couple things we can talk about. If you are a local or live near Pittsburgh or want to visit and see these sites, the Whiskey Rebellion has some pretty cool locations you can see. The Oliver Miller Homestead, it's a stone building. Even Google it. I mean, you you know, you can see it. It's still intact. It's on, believe it or not, public property. It's in what's called South Park in Pittsburgh. Not like the show... Uh, but the area is called South Park, and it is. It's a big open park. And there is right in the middle of it, you know, ice skating rinks 
and walking trails and tennis courts and things like that, playgrounds. Then there's this, like, you know, very nondescript two-story stone home. That's the Oliver Miller homestead. If you can take out with your mind all of the land around it, doesn't look that way, in 1794, that's the place. So you can visit that. The other place you could visit um, is not the mansion house, Bower Hill, uh, for reasons we're about to talk about, but right down the hill from Bower Hill, uh, there's a mansion called the Woodville Plantation. And it was where tax collector John Neville's son Presley lived. And that's still intact. It is a museum. And it's pretty much like, I would say, uh, the interpretive heart of the Whiskey Rebellion battles we're about to talk about. Because you can go in there, you can see what life was like in the 18th century, but, I mean, it's pretty much ground zero of what's left for the Whiskey Rebellion. All of this, by the way, is in the middle of a very busy, very congested uh, commuter's nightmare of Pittsburgh South Hills. So you're not going to be um, in some, like, meadow here, is what I'm saying. You're really... You know, there's a McDonald's across the street. There's a car dealership across the street. There's interstates on either side of this. And it's sort of neat that all of this urban sprawl occurred over 200 years. And these little pockets of history stayed. It's very similar to something you would see in a major city. Uh, like a New York or a Chicago as the suburbs grow out. You know, the Battle of Long Island in New York is not really a battlefield you can see anymore. Um, but that's part of the history, too. At any rate, what happens at Bower Hill, this massive plantation uh, of the tax collector John Neville, uh, is when things really heat up. The next day, 600 whiskey rebels return, armed to the teeth, led by a Revolutionary War major named James McFarlane. Neville knew there was some retaliation coming. But he didn't know how big it would be. So he had 10 U.S. Army soldiers stationed out of Fort uh, Lafayette in Pittsburgh. Fort Pitt was defunct at that point. To come out and join him. They were under the command of a man named Major Abraham Kirkpatrick. This was John Neville's brother-in-law. Kirkpatrick and Neville left the house and hid nearby. As the rebels surrounded it, Little did they know that their primary targets, John Neville, the tax collector, wasn't even in the building. The soldiers were. Uh, the 600 Whiskey Rebels were surrounding it. And it seemed like a firefight would break out at any second. There were some negotiations. There were a lot of back and forth. They were largely pointless at that, at that juncture. Women and children who were on the plantation, including slaves, were allowed to leave. And this is when controversy strikes. McFarlane, Major McFarlane, leading the Whiskey Rebels, steps forward, raises a white flag, and is shot dead on the spot. And this is sort of like the moment, the flashpoint, when everything falls apart and the Whiskey Rebellion turns into a full-fledged shooting event. Fighting will continue Bower Hill is actually set on fire by the Whiskey Rebels. And when it's all said and done, the entire plantation burns, with the exception of a slave's quarters. Slavery was in uh, western Pennsylvania at the time. Whenever it's finished, the casualties 
largely unclear, but the notable ones are present. Number one, Major McFarlane shot and killed. Maybe two other rebels died as well. One American soldier was shot and killed as a result of this. Kirkpatrick, Lennox, and Presley Neville, that is the son of the tax collector David Neville, were taken prisoner, but they would eventually escape. So, if you are George Washington, and you're watching this event, it's all bad news. You're the first president of this nation. You don't want to be the guy that lets the nation fall apart. And Alexander Hamilton, who is a faithful lieutenant, a faithful servant of Washington in the Revolution, likewise is chomping at the bit. He's saying, uh, Mr. President, we have a major rebellion on our hands. If we don't go and squash this, we know what happens with rebellions. They spread, and we'll have another American Revolution-style fight on the frontiers. Washington's at a loss. He doesn't know what to do, and the situation in Pittsburgh continues to deteriorate. Suddenly, those 600 men who attacked and burned Bower Hill, as a reminder, that's why it's not there anymore. The hill is still there. Nothing else is, and there is a marker. Moved just outside of Pittsburgh uh, to the area that was the site of Braddock's defeat in 1755. You can listen to that in previous seasons of wartime. And now there's 7,000 of them. The movement has grown, and again, they're starting to make demands. One of their biggest demands is that if they don't lift the whiskey tax, they will burn the city of Pittsburgh to the ground. I mean, you're at a fever pitch right now. 7,000 people. That's a serious threat. They make their own flag. It has a stripe for each of the six counties that are part of the rebellion in southwestern Pennsylvania. And again, they're talking about sending emissaries to Spain to join their empire. So if you are George Washington, what's your move? Now, why is this an international event? Well, aside from the Spanish, one of the other things that's going on things that's going on for Washington that was really a thorn in his side during his second term, 1792 to 1796, was a little event called the French Revolution in Europe, and America was hotly divided over the French Revolution. The populace, the Jeffersonian conservatives, if you would, tended to side with France. They're fighting a revolution just like us. The Federalists, tend to side with France's enemy, Great Britain, more for an argument of neutrality. They didn't say we were going to fight with the British, but the Americans who knew, uh, including Washington, that if we joined with the French rebels, we would be at war with Britain again. So you have these like movements throughout America of rival sides. You have these French revolutionary supporters causing trouble, stirring up issues. Whiskey rebels could fit into that. And you have these uh, sort of people claiming neutrality but demonstrating on their own. And these were public demonstrations and riots just the same. The Whiskey Rebellion was the biggest of them all. wasn't necessarily tied to the French Revolution, but what I'm saying is there was an aura of public demonstration over the country at the time. And, you know, you might know what that feels like if you own a television right now in 2017. Washington reads the Constitution, and he really goes through it. Because, again, there's never been a president before. He doesn't know what to do, and he knows that his decision, right or wrong, will set the precedent for every other president after him. 
and according to the Constitution, he believes as commander-in-chief of the military. He is within his rights, and it is his duty, in fact, to not only go to Pittsburgh, send troops to Pittsburgh, and if necessary, open fire on the rebels. George Washington, the father of our country, our first president, His Excellency, very judicious, not a big reader, but one of these people whose judgment is, is second to none, determines that he will open fire on American citizens if necessary. I mean, you can't make that stuff up. And even more amazing than that, George Washington, in his 60s, gets on a horse and actually travels to Pittsburgh himself in front of the army. It's a collection of state militias. We don't have a U.S. Army yet. In front of the force of the American military at the time and leads them as commander-in-chief himself. Because that's what his name is, commander-in-chief. And above all else, he was a general. It's the first time and the only time that the U.S. president actually leads an army himself as commander-in-chief. How do we not know more about this? And this is why I'm so passionate about it. Because this is a serious event. George Washington is on a horse leading an army himself as president. I mean, you don't see that anymore. Um, certainly not anymore um, in, in the modern context, I guess. But that's what he did. That's what he knew. Pretty amazing. Now, Washington won't get to Pittsburgh. Uh, he's far too old, he's far too tired, in too much pain. He'll stop at a fort called Bedford. And this is, you know, basically like three quarters of the way there from Philadelphia. And Alexander Hamilton takes the troops the rest of the way. Because, again, he was a military man. And this tax was sort of his baby in a lot of ways. The Whiskey Rebels in Pittsburgh have been terrorizing the city of Pittsburgh from the outside. They've been intercepting mail. They've been opening the mail, trying to determine if someone in the city was conspiring against them. They set fire to a series of barns outside of the, the city, owned by some prominent people in Pittsburgh. But it was a full-scale insurrection. And by the time the American army gets there, again, these were militias from Maryland, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and the like, the Whiskey Rebels have to make a decision. It's one thing to surround a tax collector's home and open fire. It's another thing to square off toe-to-toe -to -toe with the U.S., uh, with some of the, the best uh, m militias uh, in the United States. And faced with that threat, the Whiskey Rebels disperse. They break up. They disappear. There is no big showdown. There is no major battle. If there was... It was probably one of the biggest moments in American history in terms of the way we think about it, but it just didn't happen. They dispersed, they went home, the Whiskey Rebellion really ended uh, without a shot being fired, aside from what you saw at Bower Hill. But it was one of the great challenges of Washington's presidency, and the more I study Washington, the more I study who he was as an executive and the, the decisions he had to make, I am really impressed. I mean, I really believe George Washington uh, is in our top three best presidents ever. It's universally Abraham Lincoln is number one. And two and three are typically George Washington and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And they flip-flop from year to year, depending on what's going on, what is the mood of the country. But I think right, right now, Washington remains a hard two. 
uh, behind Lincoln. Just incalculable decisions he had to make. But the Whiskey Rebellion ends. It showed two things. One, uh, the commander-in-chief will use force to stop an enemy within if they are a threat to the nation. And two, and this is the big one, it showed that our Constitution can be assaulted through rebellion and open insurrection and still survive. The Constitution faces many tests over its existence. It will continue to face many tests. And the Whiskey Rebellion is one of the first ones. So if you're ever in my neck of the woods and you're looking for a nice stopover, a nice tour, because these Whiskey Rebellion sites are right off the interstate, Interstate 79. It goes um, south from Erie uh, onward into Virginia. Uh, if you're ever on there, look it up. It's well worth it. It's a really important history. And again, one we just don't know enough about. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer. And this is Wartime.